I start here because I believe we are a people who are stuck in the past. We are people who are always looking backward. And we can hardly be blamed because we only know what we know and we can't know what we don't know. So our minds, whether we like it or not, we are often rooted in days long gone. So take tonight, for instance. Some of you can and probably do remember a Monday, Thursday from your past. And even if you haven't been to a service like this one before, you can no doubt think of a time you've had communion. And even if you've never had communion before, you can certainly think of a memorable time you've shared a meal with someone else. Friends, family, grandchildren, whatever the situation is. And because we spend as much time as we do in our minds... We read what is happening now through the lens of the past. It happens all the time. It happens in the political realm. It happens in the familial realm. It happens in the theological realm. We're always thinking about the past at the expense of thinking about the present and even worse, at the expense of the future. When I was a kid, growing up in the church, we had lots of volunteer opportunities And there were the big ones. You know, on Sunday, you could volunteer to come up to the lectern and read Scripture aloud for everybody on Sunday morning. That was a really, really big one. You could sign up and volunteer to be one of the people who served communion on Sunday morning. There were these big opportunities. Once a year, you could go on a mission trip somewhere near or somewhere far. But there were also small little volunteer opportunities as well. You could sign up to shake hands with people when they made their way into church on Sunday morning. Very, very little one. You greeters on Sunday morning. Uh, you could volunteer to come to church on Friday mornings with all the old ladies and fold the bulletins for worship on Sunday. There's big opportunities to volunteer and there were small opportunities to volunteer. There was a job or responsibility my family had for most of my life that I would qualify as one of the big responsibilities. But I think to most of the people in the church, they thought it was a small responsibility. My family, for years, were responsible for providing communion on Sunday. So every first Saturday of the month, we would get in the car with my mom, we would go to Food Lion or Shoppers or wherever we went, and we would pick up all of the loaves of bread. And we would get these gallon jugs of Welsh's grape juice. I mean, they knew we were Christians. I mean, if you're only buying bread and grape juice, you know what kind of people those are. And every first Saturday of the month, we'd pick up the same number of loaves of bread and the same number of gallons of Welsh's grape juice, and we'd drive to church, and we'd go into the sacristy. It's this hidden room behind the altar. We would take this medieval-looking dagger that we would push into the bread with all these little spikes so that it looked easy for the pastor to rip it in half on Sunday morning. You know, I mean, we really did this every first Saturday of the month. We would spike the the bread, I don't mean that like in a negative way, we would spike it with this dagger so that they could rip it apart easily on Sunday morning. Then we would take hundreds, and I, I literally mean hundreds of these tiny little plastic shot glasses and we would put them in every single little hole that we could by the altar ring. Then we had these, I don't even know what they were, they were these kind of like dispensers with a, like, like, a, like a turkey baster almost. And we would have to fill up the grape juice and go hundreds of times in a row to put this much grape juice in every single little cup along the rail. It took forever. And every first Saturday of the month, it was our job. My sisters and I, we would hang on the back and we'd stab the loaves of bread over and over again. And we'd go and we'd fill up all the tiny little shot glasses and we poured our mouths when our mom wasn't looking and we kept going. And it was our job. It was our job. And then, of course, on Sunday, we would be sitting in church around people who were none the wiser about all the work we had to do the day before. 
And even us, we would get up in line with the 15 or 18 people and we would kneel at the altar rail and we knew that the grape juice had been out for 24 hours in an old sanctuary. You could see the film on top of the grape juice, okay? And we knew it! And we still, every first Sunday of the month, we would be waiting for that bread. Please give me some bread and we'd eat it. And then the pastor would say, now I'll take the cup and we'd take a little shot glass and we'd put it straight back. And we loved it. And we loved it. And we did it for years. Now, if you thought preparing communion took a long time, actually doing communion on Sunday took forever. There was an expectation at my home church that on the first Sunday of the month, the sermon would be cut in half because it was going to take too long to give everyone communion to preach a full sermon. So most people came to church on the first Sunday of the month because they didn't have to listen to a 15-minute sermon. They got a seven-and-a-half-minute sermon because we had to do it in waves. It would be 12 people at a time. And when you have 400, 500, 600 people in worship, it takes 30 minutes to do communion. And we would so, we would just patiently wait our turn because we were so excited. And we did it for years. Years and years and years. And then one Sunday, kind of inexplicably, while I was kneeling there, I wondered, why in the world are we doing this way? Surely there are other, I thought about the time I'd been to a Catholic church. Now, was I allowed to have communion in the Catholic church? No, 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 no. I was afraid that God was going to throw a lightning bolt down on me if I did it. But in the Catholic church, they all went up, the priest took a tiny little disc, stuck it on their tongue, and then they got to drink from one cup together. I've been to a Presbyterian church. They didn't even move in the Presbyterian church. People came out with these giant trays and they passed them around, left and right, left and right. But at our church, we all had to kneel at this altar. And so one Sunday, I muster up the courage to speak to our very aging senior pastor. I will blame it on the fact that I had consumed probably 15 of those little cups of grape juice after the service was over. And I went up to him and I said, hey, why do we do communion this way? Why do we do it this way? And you know what he said? Because that's the way we've always done it. Why do we do it that way? Because that's the way we've always done it. You know, we call today Monday, Thursday. It is a quaint name from the lips of Jesus, his own words at his own Last Supper. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. In Latin, new commandment is mandatum novum. Monday is just the Middle English version of the word mandatum. It is a mandate. We are mandated by God. We are required by God to do what we are doing. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like being mandated to do anything. Christianity has long suffered under the oppressive rule of expectations and assumptions. You must do this. You must do that. And all the musts, they don't muster up to a very lively faith. Instead, we trudge into the sanctuary to sing the hymns and offer the prayers because we think we must do it. We stand and we proclaim with bored affectations the words of the Apostles' Creed because we think we must do it. We drag ourselves up to the altar to receive the body and the blood because we've made it into our minds that we are mandated to do so. That it's a requirement. And if it's a requirement, then why are we even hungry? If this is an expectation, what's the joy in it? 
There's always a lot that happens in the Eucharist, a lot that happens tonight. In John's Gospel, Jesus' final night, he spends it with his friends. They break bread together. They sip wine together. And then Jesus takes a towel and he washes all of their feet. In some churches, that's what they're doing tonight. They're having a foot washing ceremony. Because that's how Jesus spent his final night with his friends. Even in the early church, there were countless traditions that started for this night And by the time Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says it like this. For I received from the Lord what I handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body that is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and for as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we remember, we remember, just like we remember all of those fun evenings or fun days, those fun meals we've had with people, we remember. We remember how Jesus' self-giving life included feeding the poor as well as dining with the rich. We remember that Jesus broke bread with the religious elite and with the social outcasts of his day. We remember that most of Jesus' ministry took place around tables with those who loved him and those who hated him. Because we spend so much time remembering, we often look at this thing of communion backwards. We focus all of our attention on Jesus' final night, and we get caught up in, this is the way we've always done it. Do you know what it says on our altar? Anybody know what it says on our altar? I've purposely covered it in a black shroud so you can't just look at it and read it. What? This do in remembrance of me. I mean, that's pretty good, right? I think it seems pretty fitting, because in fact, that's what we're here to do. We are here to remember. To remember all that Jesus has done. We take the bread, we take the cup, we read the words that Jesus shared with his disciples in that final evening. But somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that it's not all about the past. Because communion is never meant to be a backwards-looking proposition. Yes, It is good and right for us to imagine ourselves in that space with those people listening to Jesus tonight. He gave himself up for us. But to do so as fully and as often as we do, it denies the fundamental truth that Jesus isn't just back there doing it. Jesus is very much here with us tonight. Jesus is still breaking bread. Jesus is still offering the cup to you and me. If all we ever do is remember, then what in the world does it have to do with me today? Communion is, of course, about remembrance. But it is equally, if not more, about anticipation. For as often as we drink this cup and for as often as we eat this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I would make a case that our altar should not say, this do in remembrance of me. I think maybe it would be better if it said, this do in anticipation of me. There was a woman who used to sneak into the church during the very first hymn on Sunday mornings. She'd kind of wait in her car until she heard the music going, and she'd sneak in, she'd sit in the back, and she'd sing a hymn. And then during the final hymn of the service, she would sing the first or second verse, and then she'd retreat. She always waited until people were already sitting when she'd come in, and she always left before she had to talk to anybody. She did this for a long time until I noticed that she only ever came to church on the first Sunday of the month. 
She only ever came when we had communion. So this went on for a long time until one Sunday, during the final hymn, I left and chased her down in the parking lot. And she was running to her car, and I said, hey, is everything okay? And she turned around, and she said, yeah, of course, everything's fine. I said, well, I, I've noticed you're, you only come on the first Sunday of the month, and you always leave before anyone gets a chance to talk to you. She said, yeah, I know. She said, I'm Baptist. My church doesn't do communion. But I come here on the first Sunday of the month because I know that I need strength for the journey. I said, well, that's incredible. I, but, I mean, we do this every first Sunday of the month. We'd love to have you be part of our church community. She said, I know, I know. I, I love my church. I'm not going to leave my church. You know, our pastor once said that communion is when the past, the present, and the future all get confused with each other. And that pastor said it as if it was a bad thing. She said, so... I'm not going to leave my church, but I'm going to keep coming on the first Sunday of the month to join you with yours because I love when my time gets all confused. I love when the past and the present and the future get all confused with each other. You know, one of the responses tonight about the memorable meal was the wedding feast. Not just because of the food. We're going to say it's because of the bride. I have said at every wedding I've ever done, every single wedding, that Jesus gets asked a lot of questions in the Gospels. And one of the questions he gets asked the most is, hey, what's the kingdom of heaven going to be like? And he compares it to a lot of things. Oh, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Oh, the kingdom of heaven is like a sower going out to sow. But you know what he compares the kingdom of heaven to most? A wedding feast. A wedding feast. Why? Because at a wedding feast, at the meal, time gets all confused. The past and the present and the future are all melted and molded together as one. All who have come before us, all who are with us, and all who will be here after we are gone are present at that table with us at that occasion. Weddings, those meals, when we break bread, they are a time when we get to experience a little bit of heaven on earth. So I'll never forget that woman who snuck into church and left before anyone got to see her. She came because she loved having her time be confused. Monday, Thursday services often end in a very confusing way. It's very different than what happens on Sunday. It's very different than what happens on other services. Tonight, as we conclude, we will join with Christians all across the globe and Christians all across the span of time Because we will leave tonight in silence. We will strike the altar, which is to say we will remove the elements of color from our sanctuary. We will turn the lights off and we will leave in silence. We will not speak to each other. We will not speak until we get into our cars. It is a witness that we know what we're doing at the table, but we also know what is coming. We know the cross is coming. And we will do this because our sense of time is being purposely confused. Yes, Jesus has already shared his meal with his friends. Jesus has already mounted the hard wood of the cross. Jesus has already broken free from the tomb. But tonight, we both place ourselves in the time of Jesus and we witness to the fact that Jesus is still with us. We gather at the table not because of what Jesus did, but because of what Jesus is still doing. And we will engage in all of this in anticipation of that time where we will gather together again at Christ's most heavenly banquet with all who have come before, 
all who are with us now, and all who will come after we're long gone. This table is where our time gets confused. And that's a very good thing. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.